Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss reflections on our college choices. We talked to Matt Gray about the Student Conservation Association, community networking, and sailing around the world. And finally, the largest bat in the world is the Wingfoot Vampire, a flying fox found in Southeast Asia with a wingspan of nearly six feet. Don't worry, though, despite the name, they eat only fruit and nectar from flowers and are therefore an important pollinator and distributor in the forest. But if they did eat blood, though, right? Wow. (laughs) That'd be something. Six foot, like, (laughs) monster coming at you. Yeah, I've seen them, actually. I I have seen them in a zoo. I can't remember which one. They're pretty, they do look vampire-ish. They're very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. It's another one of those, like, just look up flying foxes and just look at their faces. They they look awesome. You can see their hands really well on the wings. Oh, just <laughs> cool, very cool. cool animal. All right. Hit that music. Join NAEP for a webinar on ethics and technology for the environmental professional, which will be held on December 15th, 2022 at noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. This presentation will start with a discussion on the various ethical requirements for attorneys, engineers, planners, and NAEP members. This will be followed by a discussion about how those ethical requirements interplay with the increasing use of technology, including how to use technology to maintain privacy and ethical requirements. The webinar will finish with a discussion of practical pointers on how to make the most efficient and effective use of various tools and technologies professionals have come to rely on. Check it out at www.naep.org. Also, fun note for the end of that is with our very own friend of the show, Tim Perry. So it'll be a really good webinar. It's worth worth checking out. Awesome. All right. Are you ready for today's fake sponsor? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. All right. (laughs) Because it's time. Okay. Ready, go. Okay, are you tired of uh, drinking just regular juice? How about this? We got a new one for you guys. It's called acorn milk. That's right. It's milk <laughs> from acorns. That's It's <laughs> It's so good. It tastes like dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Squirrels love it. So if you want to get your inner squirrel on, check out acorn milk. <laughs> Or just sponsor the show. Either way, it would be great. Available at your local farm store. <laughs> let's, let's get to our segment. Oh my gosh. I know. Like My whole college experience was just stupid. I didn't do it right. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Gee whiz. Not even close. I went to school, did my classes, and went home. I don't think I ever looked to see what other programs. I didn't look to see what other colleges I could go to. I went where it was close. Yeah, I mean, I had to. I didn't really have a choice. It was too expensive otherwise. Well, yeah, hence why I didn't look, I think. But at the same time, I uh, may have been willing to incur some more student debt if I had realized what opportunities may have awaited me. (laughs) Yeah. I still joke about it. Like, um, so when I worked, I worked for Duke, right, Uh, between colleges. So between grad school and undergrad. And uh, after two years at Duke working at Duke, I could get an 80% tuition reduction to go to Duke, right? Mm-hmm. It would still be, so it'd be two years longer. I have to wait two years. And then it would still be more expensive than going to VCU right now. That was the choice that I made. Yeah. 
it was like $2,000 a semester more expensive. Even Virginia Tech had it, had an, an outreach program. Like I had no clue about it. I just heard yeah. about it. I'm like, oh, that sounds like okay. whatever. I didn't even know I liked to travel that much when, I mean, I, I should have, but I just never thought of it. You know, I was too busy doing other stuff, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, being an emo kid. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. I was I was not the, you know, academia type, so I really didn't picture myself doing extracurricular things or Mm -hmm. getting involved in any kind of way. Just funny. Like I I remember like I great at school, right? But I just didn't want to do anything else with it. I didn't want to stay there longer and do more stuff. As like I basically was forced to do marching band, you know, just to have a extra cooking activity, right? I should have done track. It would have been a lot more fun for me. Not that I didn't like it. And I appreciate, you know, knowing how to play music. That's fun. And you know, all that, but ugh, just didn't enjoy that. So I'm like, if I hate this, why would I do other things? You know, <laughs> which is such a, you know, teenager mentality. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, you know, I didn't go back to school for biology until I was in my late twenties. So yeah. I was working and just needed the degree. I didn't think that I really was like, let me see what I can explore and check my future options. That's why mentoring is so important. I think young people need help realizing that there's more to getting involved in networking and doing stuff than just showing your face or grabbing a business card. It's about exploring what you might want your future to look like. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, uh, (laughs) there's more than one way to do it too. And I think a lot of times we, when we're young, think that there's only one path there's only one way to go and there's only one thing we can do and uh, you know in a way that that helped me back for sure i was like oh, i don't know what i'm gonna do but it's got to be this i guess you know and uh, i could have used somebody to t- tell me you know as an undergrad hey I, I know you really enjoy psychology and you really find it very fascinating and you're a thinker that's great you should do biology as your ma- as your undergrad degree you should do that and you know, i probably still would have gone to my master's you know but i would have had to you know probably would have met more people that that lined up with what I was looking for, you know, even friend-wise, if I had done something like that, you know, which is what grad school was for me. I was like, oh my gosh, all my, all my friends are here, you know? <laughs> yeah, so true. I think I had a better handle on what I couldn't do than what my options would have been taking certain different tracks or something yeah. or going to different school or taking time off. I mean, I took time off, so, but it wasn't on purpose. It was just, it happened. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, I do wish I could go back a little bit. That's the only real regret. I don't have a lot of regrets. I don't look back tons and be like, I wish I had done that. Yeah. But it worked out, you know, and I, like I say, the joke still stands. I'm a, a biologist who knows how to talk to people. So, you know, Hey, I'll, I'll take it. And it ended up working out just fine. Again, that more than one way to go. But if I'd stayed, I was there for an extra semester. Like I graduated early and I could have left, but I was, you know, dating a girl at the time. And, uh, <laughs> so I was like, I'll just hang out. <laughs> I should have just taken a few more classes and I would have had a double major. Like that's, that's the, it was right there, you know, <laughs> but you know, I was 20 something. I didn't want to, I was like, I was like, I just, I don't want to grow up. That's basically what I was doing. Yeah. Like, I hear you. I think that that's part of the problem though, is like, you know, even if you don't take any intentional actions, your life still can turn out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to, I mean, you just get there faster, right? I probably could have figured out a lot. <laughs> A little sooner. Yeah. I I spent like eight years kind of in the working world before I really figured out, oh, this is what I want to do with my career. And what I think that the term is basically like somewhere, I remember reading this somewhere between four and 16 years is where you start really in your career, like 
going forward with it, like really taking off with it, you know, as far as responsibility and money and all that stuff goes. And just the difference between those is circumstance almost always. So yeah, some of that you make for yourself, you know, and that's what I had to do. Truthfully, I was, I was like, if I want to grow, I've got to go, you know, which is a great catchphrase I just came up with. <sighs> <laughs> And on that note, let's talk to Matt about his experiences because they're super awesome. (laughs) Welcome back to EPR. Today we have Matt Gray, Senior Vice President of Programs at the Student Conservation Association on the show. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So glad to have you here. Before we launch into questions more about you, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Student Conservation Association? Yeah, certainly. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, so Student Conservation Association, or SCA, we are based in Arlington, Virginia, but we are a truly national organization. We are the oldest and first, I guess that's the same thing, uh, Conservation Corps or Climate Corps in the country. So we were founded about 65 years ago by Liz Putnam with recognition that at that time our parks were being, quote unquote, loved to death. Um, so, you know, post-World War II, everyone's coming back and they're excited to get outside and use our parks and they were not being maintained. So Liz had the brilliant idea in her thesis to get youth and young adults to go out, help maintain those public lands, and in that process really have life-changing experiences. So that's what SDA is founded on and still what we do. Definitely we've morphed over time. We still do a lot of work in national parks, national forests, and pretty much all 50 states. But we also do a lot of work in cities. Um, so we're actually in 10 cities right now where we have active programming. So we're front country, back country, urban areas. But really, you know, how do you transform lives through service to nature? And that, that's that's really the bread and butter for SCA. Yeah. That's really cool. How many students do you work with? We have um, over 2,000 what we call members each year. These are paid youth, paid young adults, mostly between the ages of, you know, 16 and 30. And then we have a lot more volunteers and a lot more, you know, folks engaged through our work. But in terms of who we hire, essentially, to do all this, it's about 2,000 a year. Yeah. And then the the, the Conservation Corps world, it's a little over 20,000 total um, each year in the variety of cores that now exist around the country. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And that my next question is the cores are all over the country. Do people know that they're associated with the SCA? Do they have different names? Like how do students is it always students or is it also like graduates? How do people know that the opportunities exist? Yeah, our name isn't the best these days. I'll just say <laughs> it's not the most appropriate because it's not, you know, student conservation association, it's not just students. In fact, it's mostly not current students. Um, <laughs> we don't just do conservation. We certainly do a lot of conservation, but we also do a lot of climate work. And and we're not really an association. Um, we are, <laughs> uh, you know, we are, you know, we're a nonprofit run in a way like a business, right? And that we're not an association of other cores. There is an association called the Core Network that we're a part of, and they bring together the 130 plus cores around the country. But our members, yes, very associated with us. We run teams. So there's a lot of like team-based work where... You'll have two leaders, eight members out there from anywhere from six weeks to a full year and anywhere from the back country of Alaska, fending off bears, doing trail work to, again, working in urban areas. And then we also have a lot of interns. So these are more of those folks who are in this career. They're interested in the environment. They're interested in conservation. And they get we have like a thousand interns every year that are placed 
everywhere doing all sorts of different things. So that's kind of a different model where they're individually placed and the partner organization, the park service, the forest service, a local land management agency will host them. And we don't have staff on the ground, but all the team-based stuff, we have staff on the ground really to support that. Yeah. Okay, cool. What are the current priority objectives for the SEA? Our current priority is certainly more and more into climate and climate resilience. We've always been in climate resilience, even before we, as a country, as a globe, really began focusing more and more on climate. So certainly a lot of restoration, a lot of shoreline resilience, a lot of tree canopy work. And it does vary by, again, location. So a lot of our urban area work is certainly getting at you know, historically marginalized communities is, is a priority, aligning really well with what the National Justice 40 initiative. So that's mo- most of our urban program is, is structured around that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a wide variety. We also get into areas that you wouldn't necessarily maybe think of like a, a core, which is things like historic preservation. So one example, in Massachusetts, we have a, a great historic preservation program with 100% placement out of that program into the trade of historic preservation. Wow. So we're getting more in like like wildfire too. We all know, right? Like fire, wildfires is more and more of an issue. It's going to continue that way. So we're creating a wildfire academy where we um, will prepare our members over a six-month period, both in team-based and individual placed positions, to learn what they need to know about wildfire managements, fuels reduction, getting certifications. So if they then want to fight fires, they, they're ready to do that. And the Forest Service is ready to hire them. If they don't, then they can do something else great. But that, that's kind of where we're headed more and more is getting to that workforce development piece, where we're not only having these really transformative experiences on the ground, but also preparing them for a career if they want to go on that route. And uh, you you mentioned, you know, working with agencies. Is that part of the, the program too? Then is you know, working with Forest Service or, you know, any other national groups like working with state SHPOs, for example, for mm-hmm. historic preservation. Is that also part of what you guys do? Yeah, we, we have over 500 partners, so we, we don't do anything alone. Um, everything <laughs> we do in the field is with a, a land management partner or some other partner. So, yes, that, that's a huge piece of it. We have a whole partnership division that is, is great at that. Um, so that, that's one wonderful piece of this work is that it, it truly is a partnership in terms of the work that we do and all the people we collaborate with. That's cool. Do you still get to go out in the field or are you stuck in the office? (laughs) Uh, Stuck in the office more than I want to be. Um, (laughs) We are getting more and more back into the field. But I think as all of us, it's just, it it is a slow transition. We've gotten in these habits, right? I've been working in my, you know, windowless basement. Um, So no, we're definitely traveling more. And it, it's just critical to get out there too. And not just for me, but all staff. It's one of these jobs where you can talk about it and talk about it and it's wonderful. But until you actually experience it, you actually talk to it, someone in the field who's doing it. It's their first job. Yeah. And they're having this incredible experience. Um, it just, it, it's never going to fully translate. So that's what we really try to do with partners as well is just get out in the field as much as we can yeah. and really experience it firsthand. It's like, what is it? It's like, it's one thing to say, um, you know, I, you're going to be working in a smart salt marsh, right? And it's a totally other thing to be there all day long being like, why did I say this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of first jobs, your first job was with this SEA, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty full circle for me. I was, um, I mean, I grew up pretty much a city kid in, in Cleveland, entering suburb uh, Cleveland Heights. 
And uh, yeah, never went camping as far as I remember when I was growing up. <laughs> and then uh, age 17, maybe just to get out of Cleveland for a summer, like I'll sign up for this SCA thing. I get to like go someplace else for <laughs> five weeks. Right. Um, but it was great. Yeah, I went again, never camped. I did, went to Indiana for five weeks. Um, exotic, lovely Indiana and built trail and camped for five weeks and showered every fourth day and we cooked all our own <laughs> meals and just really learned so much one about just being outside and being comfortable in nature and and we of course the conservation work building trails things like that but also just meeting other kids from around the country sharing that experience so it really was life-changing for me and then four years later i then led some crews when i was 21 in georgia and pennsylvania and then did a bunch of other stuff for 20 years. Uh, and then, um, <laughs> yeah, and then came back to SCA a little less than two years ago. Uh, yeah, no, but, but that first experience always stuck with me. I think it was always somewhere in my head that, oh, it would be cool if I had an opportunity at some point in my life to come back to SCA. And I was very lucky to, to have that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, but it, it begs the question, though, because one of the things I'm about to ask you about is your, your time at the University of Pittsburgh. So if I got this right, you grew up in Cleveland. And then moved to Pittsburgh for four years. So what was that like? Did you get an, I mean, I actually remember being in Pittsburgh and walking in and they're like, well, you're not from here. Are you from Cleveland? I'm like, what? <laughs> Did you get that a lot at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I love Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is an incredible city. Great place to go to, to school. I hate the sports teams. But, <laughs> you know that. So there was always that balance, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that never really left and is still with me to today. Um but no, love going, love going to Pitt and spending time there. Um, so, Laura, should I tell him that I'm a Steelers fan or not? Is that not, is, it, yeah, is the, is is the interview over? <laughs> <laughs> well, neither one of us are having especially good years. So oh no, no, <laughs> not drown our like shared misery. There you go. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. But uh, if you can forgive me for that, um, <laughs> I think a lot of what you did. We can continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of what you did at the University of Pittsburgh is pretty cool. How did your semester at Yellowstone and your semester at Sea go? I think that both of those are really unique, mm. cool experiences. And did those things also end up contributing to your outlook on your career? Yeah, thanks for that question. So I went to Pitt for engineering when I was doing industrial engineering, which was fine. Um, but I definitely, <laughs> as I got you know more into the program, definitely wanted more. Um, and also really was interested in traveling. And I was very lucky at the time. Uh, this program called Semester at Sea was actually run out of University of Pittsburgh randomly. There's no sea next to Pittsburgh, but <laughs> for some thinking. reason, <laughs> uh, I have no idea why. But, you know, so if you wanted to go on this thing called Semester at Sea, you actually technically had to transfer to Pitt for that semester. And there mm. was two, you know, students from 200 different universities were on this thing. So one, I just knew about it through that, but also it was just easier. My, my financial aid carried over. So it was just made life easy. And the, the trip was amazing. So it's 100 days. You circumnavigate the globe. Oh, you wow. go to 50 days on land, 50 days at sea. We visit nine countries, you know, four oh, or five wow. days per country. As a, you know, a 20-year-old, it's ridiculous, oh, you know. So it was yeah. like my, my first big travel experience, kind of a preview of the world. So I was very lucky to have a chance to do that. And, um, yeah, so really, I mean, that definitely has shaped me. I met, met my future wife on that trip <laughs> oh uh just as friends but you know seven years later um hey, you know? dating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seven years later the rest is history <laughs> yeah 
But then I, I added anthropology as a second degree, I think partially mm-hmm. because of that trip and just just exposure to all those cultures. Uh, I think will change anyone. And so I got a dual degree. And I think that eventually got into my a lot of my other career experiences is this certainly an environmental focus and, and sustainability, but connecting really to the people side of things. And I think even more so with my current job. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, you got to circumnavigate the globe. What were you doing? What was the actual like stuff that you did? You know, because that sounds amazing, but there has to be some some work involved in there too. It can't be all. Rethinking fun. my college choices. <laughs> I'm so mad. Honestly, I don't want to say it, but I'm so jealous. <laughs> that is, oh, yeah, but yeah. Cool. But like, like, what what were you actually doing when you, when you were on the trip? Like, what was the purpose? I guess you can go back. What was it? Road rules. Maybe from the show Road Rules <laughs> on MTV. There was yeah, a Road yeah, Rules. Sam has no idea yeah. what you're talking about. I know. No, no one, yeah, like 30 or younger. Um, <laughs> but there was a Road Rules actually of semester C. I think the semester before we went randomly. Um, so oh, you, can get, you can get a sense of oh, how crazy it was. But yeah, you took four classes on the ship. And then some of those classes, you know, you would have in-country experiences related, were related to that. So I took, you know, a an art class and I then went to go visit museums or or did whatever and or especially whatever um in those countries. <laughs> Come on. Uh, I, you know, I took a, to <laughs> history of East Asia. So we visited Japan, China, Malaysia, Vietnam. So you know that was really cool to connect the history oh, to those yeah. so that was kind of what it was like. But I don't like it's also crazy to think about back then. Like I don't even know how we figured out how we like what to do in those countries, you know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, we yeah. weren't using the internet as far as I'm remember very much <laughs> even right. at that point. So I don't even remember how we figured out what to do, but somehow uh, yeah. we had these great four or five day adventures in these countries. You didn't have Google translate. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> that is very cool. Oh. That's yeah. All right. I'm done with this interview. <laughs> I can't hear anything yeah. else. Yeah. No more of this. Cause there's more cool stuff. I know. Uh, that's awesome. But let's talk about Ohio some more. Cause I, that's more on my level. Um, <laughs> I'm from Lima. So I'm all about oh. the Cincinnati Sweet. and Cleveland area there. Uh, we just had Kylie Johnson on the show who was in Cincinnati doing awesome things. And she was telling us a lot of cool stuff that you wouldn't expect from Ohio. And you were chief of sustainability in Cleveland for eight years. So you facilitated a community-based climate action plan centered on equity. So we're just curious, what was the outcome of that? And then what kind of skills go into putting something like that together? Yeah, I was really fortunate to get this position. I um, was doing a lot of national work and came back to Cleveland, living in my parents' basement age 30 and like figuring out what to do next. And um, <laughs> and I really want to get into urban sustainability at that point. And I was lucky that the, in Cleveland, actually, at the time, already had a pretty strong initiative called Sustainable Cleveland through the mayor's office. So I just networked, met people locally, just talked to as many human beings as I possibly could to understand what was going on. And I, I met the at that time, the current chief, and we connected and eventually got a job at the city. Um, and it was great. I worked there eight years for as director to the that, to the chief and then four years as chief um, got promoted about halfway through and it was amazing i mean especially in that decade so much growth and innovation around urban sustainability almost in any topic right from transportation to energy land use whatever it is and so to be not only in cleveland doing that work but also working with the cincinnati's of the world who cincinnati is doing incredible work 
and urban sustainability, but also nationally, you know, about a, there's this urban sustainability directors network, which is, you know, the best professional network I've ever been in. And it's, it's very member driven, a hundred plus people like me just trying to figure out what this job is and how do we advance sustainability, especially with an equity focus. And in Cleveland, that was especially important. Cleveland is now, by some metrics, the poorest city in the country and still 30 plus percent poverty rate in an old industrial city, right? Just like Pittsburgh um, yeah. and definitely parts of Cincinnati. So how do you do sustainability work, climate work in a city um, where that is the context? So I learned a ton through that, especially tons of other, you know, tons of local stakeholders uh, that have been really doing this type of work for decades. And I think we definitely made some some good progress over the time. Yeah. And, you know, it actually sparks a question for me. Like, Pittsburgh is, was almost like the model for how to transition from one industry to another, right? A total shift in the way that city was run. And so Cleveland caught up or is catching up, I think, to that that model as well. But like when you're talking about sustainability in a city that's, you know, on the poorer side, right? They're doing all these other challenges. Do you have to frame it in terms of, you know, cost cutting and saving? Is that what is driving the conversation or is is there still just a recognition and need for sustainability, regardless of that fact? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does save you money, but it's also very important or it can save you money. It doesn't always. Sometimes it costs a lot to do. But mm-hmm. like, what is the, is there a specific, um, I guess, you know, maybe like a the cultural phenomenon happening there that maybe is unique to those Rust Belt cities that you saw? Yeah, great question. Part of it, I would say, is the process for getting things done. And in a city like Cleveland, especially then, I mean, there just was so little money to yeah. do anything. I mean, the, the tax base has been reduced, and especially in a state like Ohio, where the, the state government is also just not supportive of climate action. Right. Um, where's the money coming from? Yeah. So the part of it was, okay, if we're going to get things done in a city like Cleveland and in a region like Northeast Ohio, you, it needs to be collaborative. So anything we did had to be very collaborative in nature. And fortunately, that's the way you should do things anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I was <laughs> saying in a city like Cleveland, it, it sort of forces that issue. Because the only way you're going to get enough funding like cobbled together to do something transformative is through that. So I think that, and that's pretty much true across all topics of sustainability, I would say. And we also really focused, again, didn't have a lot of money, on engagement and especially community engagement. So we were one of the first cities to have a, a big community-wide summit where we'd bring together 500 plus people every year and then with smaller events throughout the year just to generate ideas see how we as a city government can support neighborhoods you know small businesses nonprofits so like truly collaborative i'd say to, to get things done so that's like one i'd say that's one piece versus some of the really just wealthier cities in the country that can kind of do it more go alone a little more because they just have some more resources to invest that's changed a little bit, I'd say, with with the current bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act. I think it's definitely provided an unprecedented amount of resources for local government that I wish I had when yeah. I was there. Yeah. Um, so it's a really exciting opportunity, for, especially for cities like Cleveland, to actually be able to make big, yeah. big investments now. And then the other piece is like, who, how do you not often lead with climate and sustainability? So when I'm talking with the other department heads in the city government and in county government, we have our climate action plan for sure. And we worked on that with the community, but it's often not leading with climate. So when we would go and work with neighbor neighborhoods, we would, we would always focus on what works in your neighborhood. What do you want to improve on? What are the assets? What is your family interested in doing more of? 
you know, the local really place-based nonprofits. And then from there, based on those assets and those needs, then connect that to solutions that address climate. But yeah. climate sort of comes at the end versus yeah. upfront. And so I think that was really our approach in Cleveland. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's brilliant. I love the idea. So we're we're talking about being collaborative, right? You already mentioned that you had to do a little bit of networking, and honestly, that those have to go hand in hand, right? Like you you don't you're not allowed to be collaborative if you don't network, right? And how you approach it is a really unique and interesting thing too. So you're saying you know like you don't start with the big thing, you you work your way towards the big thing, right? Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for people maybe starting out that process? You know they're they want to start you know, working collaboratively with the communities. I think it's great you're going out there and asking specific questions, but how do you even start that? Like what, what advice would you give to people who are trying to maybe build up their network or, or like establish something really collaborative mm-hmm. with the community? Yeah. In most cities, there are those volunteer opportunities to engage in many different areas. So for example, we had ambassadors in Cleveland. I know a lot of cities have, where you can just be an ambassador. Some are paid. I think some are, but that's a great way to engage places like community development corporations, like CDCs, very neighborhood-based organizations that can have huge impact in those neighborhoods. And that gives you a real good sense, one, what the work is like on the ground, but also as a platform to engage citywide. Things like the summit, tons of engagement events. So I would never, that's why I would say, just get out there in a place, especially like Cleveland, that isn't that big you're really able, able to, to get a sense of the landscape pretty quickly if you're committed to, to getting out there. I know that's easier for some people than others. So yeah, so definitely don't hesitate to, to network and, and build that, especially local government and just any, any local sustainability effort. Uh, and, that, and people often ask too, like what skills are required for my job back then or, or working in a sustainability office? And certainly the technical skills were there it definitely is an advantage to have something you can point to that this is an interest area. But at the end of the day, you know, it is that collaboration, the ability to work with groups to get things done in many ways was the most important factor to consider when we were thinking about hiring. Um, so it is actually a lot of those quote unquote soft skills, which I don't like that term, but that, right. that really, that really is critical. Yeah, it is a funny term, isn't it? Soft skills. It's like, yeah, these are the most important. Let's call it, what do, we, what do you have a term for that? What do we call it? Yeah. Soft. We'll call it soft. That's the most important. Okay, cool. Foundational, yeah. critical. No, let's call it soft. Let's call it soft. <laughs> That's because it was invented back in a time where leadership were men were men and you got to yeah. lead and be strong. Yeah, and so these yeah. are just the soft skills, shaking hands. Right. <laughs> yeah, even though, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if it anyway, um, just in case we haven't uh, made our, our listeners jealous enough of your, your travel experiences here, like, because we, we do love talking about hobbies on the show. And this does seem to be one of yours, which, you know, Laura and I both love to travel too. So the longest trip I ever took was actually three weeks. And, you know, I got to go to the Galapagos. So I, mm-hmm. I understand being on a boat for several days in a row and, and, you know, what that was like. And, oh, absolutely wonderful. But, but you've done far longer trips than this. You and your family spent four, four months traveling, ended mm-hmm. up in Portugal during the pandemic. So um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, obviously you weren't planning to be there when that happened. Did it, did it end up cutting your travels short? It did, uh, probably by a couple of months. And yeah, folks sometimes feel bad for us that our trip got cut short. I was like, no, 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 no. Like we got four months of amazing travel and I know a lot of people had entire large trips completely canceled, right? So yeah, we had a unique opportunity at December. Everyone knows the timeline. December 2019, 
where I was at the end of my position in Cleveland, uh, my wife's in, in theater and she kind of had a natural break. And we had a, at the time, uh, our daughter was two. So kind of before school and started, okay, let's, this is the time, like over the next 15 years, this is the time to do a big trip. So we, we traveled for four months, got to like New Zealand, Australia, Dubai, Hawaii. Um, and then we're in Portugal in yeah, like late February, 2020 and there for a couple of weeks in Lisbon and then pandemic hit and we sort of hunkered down in rural Portugal for two weeks, um, oh, wow. through late March. And then we're like, all right, we can either stay in Airbnbs Forever. and go broke, uh, <laughs> for an indefinite amount of time or somehow make it back to the States. So we, we scampered back, uh, got one of the last flights like late March. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So, so prior to that though, um, you know, you're, you're in, you say New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, and then, and then Europe. I don't know how, if you know, those are far apart. Um, but like, how did you plan that out? Like, what do you, you know, cause we see that a lot in Europe, right? You're, they'll say people will take six months to go travel Asia or go travel Africa or wherever they want to go. They just go for six months. It's very rare to see in the U S. So how do you plan out, you know, four months of travel? It sounds so long. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, we, we actually bought one-way tickets. We, we, so we put our, our place on the market and then we didn't know when, if we were going to come back to the States at the time. Mm. Um, so we'd only travel, we'd only planned it through Hawaii and Australia. And then the rest, we're just going to fly by the seat of our pants, which was a little scary with a two-year-old. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it, it is daunting, especially with a two-year-old, but I, for folks who are adventurous, it's, it's actually a great time to travel with a, a kid that young and in our, our approach is we like to stay in places for multiple weeks at a time just to get to know mm. it it's easier logistically and yeah and go from there my other big travel experience was in mauritius which um, i highly recommend to anyone even remotely considering a fulbright scholarship yeah. so i did a fulbright there for 10 months to do climate research that's about a decade ago and it was just so great if you're looking for like a, a career just to just to shake things up and you kind of want to go in a slightly different direction. Fulbright is great for that because you have a lot of time to do independent research. And um, I was doing a lot of climate work for the federal government at the time, but not. I was really interested in resilience work, and I wasn't. It was going to be hard to get through that with my job, and so I kind of the slight shift to do resilience work in Mauritius on this Fulbright. So, yeah, for anyone's kind of considering that, I would just highly recommend. Yeah, looking into it. Yeah. And now that we're here, like talking through that Fulbright process, how did you get it? Cause that's really competitive. It's really, really competitive to try to get something like that. So how did you get that? And what advice would you give people trying wanting to do those? things? One thing I would mention is it's kind of a misnomer that you have to be early twenties or out of college to do it at any age. Now you can apply for a Fulbright. Um, so that's one thing to note. There are different types, I, I believe still, uh, but yeah, they're definitely uh, more Late, prof- late late career folks can still do it. There is some strategery to it. Uh, <laughs> I chose a, you know, some countries, You so you apply to a specific country on a specific topic. The only way to be eligible essentially is to get a host letter of support from an institution in the country you're applying to. Okay. Um, but some countries, as you might imagine, are more competitive than others. France, you know, it's going to be more competitive than other countries. So I was looking around. I was like, what are, what are my sweet spots? Like my French was okay, but not good enough. So I was, I need a, like a country where English is still the official language. 
I need a, a country that's interested in climate research, a place I want to be. And at the time, I was fascinated by this idea of living on an island. And would I go crazy, you know, for yeah, a year yeah, yeah. living on an island? <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. And I was really interested in, um, I hadn't traveled much to Africa. So Mauritius sort of hit all those buckets. And the thing is, like, not that many people apply there. Yeah. So it's just actually easier to get in than some of these other other countries. So, so yeah, that all added up and... Yeah, so it's definitely competitive, but you, should, you know, you always got to give it a shot. Sure. That's great. That's really good advice, too. Always got to love some good strategery. Yeah. <laughs> you guys. That is one of my favorite <laughs> words. I use it on my folders and my in my planning folders, and people will say, Is that a real world? And I'm like, Yeah, it's a real word. George Bush made it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you, you actually, so you spell it out. I do. I do. That's I, yeah. There's no verb yeah. for like, otherwise, you have to say, I'm doing strategy. No, I'm just, mm. I'm doing strategery. <laughs> I think it's perfect. <laughs> it's just a lot more fun. And in all endeavors, as Nick knows, that's the important thing is having some fun. That is true. <laughs> and you survived your uh, island experience, by the way. You, you didn't go completely cra- crazy, I hope. It seems, right? you seem normal. You seem no, normal. it was great. What a, it's yeah. an incredible country, uh, Mauritius. Like, so dynamic for a 40 by 20 square mile oh, island great. in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah, I feel really yeah. lucky to have gotten to spend time there. That's neat. Also, I saw that the banner on your LinkedIn is some sort of Hobbitown looking place. And now that you said you've been to New Zealand, I'm very curious if you actually took that photo from a real Hobbit like place. Yes, Hob- Hobbiton. Yes. I mean, you can't go to New Zealand without. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Interview's over. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Again, again, the interview is over. <laughs> That's enough. Oh, that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was a good trip. Yeah. Um, it's so hard to get there, you know. It's just so far away. But like, I bet it's worth it, right? So yeah, if you're going to go to New Zealand, you like dedicate three weeks um, yeah. is, is the recommendation. Are there like a ton of Americans like making that pilgrimage? No. No, flight. no? Okay. It's, it's a brutal I mean, flight. Like no matter what, it's yeah. awful. Yeah. Yeah. No, there aren't that many. I mean, there's certainly some Americans there, but not, not too many. Okay, cool. Still on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then another thing in your hobbies, you long distance cycle. So I'm very curious, what's the farthest you've gone? Mm, I would say the farthest on one trip was about a thousand miles. Wow. What? what? Well, not in a day. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, say, so then the question is over how much time. Yeah, yeah, over... He was the best liar. No, right up until now. Uh, <laughs> I would have, I like to average around 60 miles a day which kind of gets you, you know, if you're saying 10 miles an hour yeah it can get you into wherever you're gonna stay that night at earliest time yeah so i'd say i think three four weeks at 60 miles a day so i think that's about a thousand um so yeah northern france and then like what like that ireland scotland wales was a really cool trip that was a long time ago so i haven't done one of these in about a decade and i i miss it but Okay, I yeah, don't recall them having a lot of bike lanes on the roads that you're probably on. So, is it? I'm afraid to ride my bike here in my neighborhood. So, like, is that, <laughs> yeah. how do you avoid getting hits, or have you had any scares, or like, you know, it seems yeah. terrifying to me. It really does. <laughs> yeah, there were some ter- definitely terrifying moments. Most of the roads I was on pretty sparse, and a lot of so a lot of like rural northern France, no one really around roads. No, but it's still, I mean, I feel very lucky, you know, knock on wood, you know, it's been, I've been lucky. I haven't had any incredibly harrowing experiences. 
but yeah, you do have to be super alert, um, which is hard when you're on biking, you know, six, yeah. seven hours a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty exhausting, but at the, the speed at which you travel cycling, I just have always found is the best way to see the world. It's fast enough where you can get some distance, but you can also stop easily. You're outside. It's just a great speed to, to really to see the world. So yeah, I recommend it to folks for sure. What is like something that you come across that you wouldn't have seen if you were in a car or traveling mm. a different way? Um, it's just, you know, the, any of these like roadside shops, you know, yeah. that it, you kind of can see passing by in a car, but you're just not going to actually stop. It, it's just so much easier to actually stop, pause and just see what's going on. Um, yeah. Going up these huge mountains and in Scotland and just the, the feeling of that and getting to the top. Is super special. So th- those those kind of moments are, are really great. And you kind of also enter these meditative zones cycling yeah. if you kind of get in that groove, right? I think, you know, you oh, probably yeah. had that where it's like an hour can go by and you don't even realize it. You aren't even <laughs> even know what you were thinking about. So those are it's just a, it's just a great way to to spend a day while exhausting. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's funny though. Like that's one of my favorite things about doing that kind of exercise is like you know the middle. Like the, like the middle of five hours goes by like nothing, but the last 10 minutes, you're like, I need yes. to stop. <laughs> it's been one minute. I can't believe this. You know, oh, that's the joy of it. Honestly, it's amazing how our brains work. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, we are running out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to chat about today? No, it's been great. Yeah. Great chatting. Yeah. I guess the, I guess the last thing I'd say is like my, you know, my career has been, there's definitely been a through line of sustainability and environment and climate, but um, definitely going in different direct, like a swervy line yeah. um, going through. And I, I just, it's really worked for me to both build on what I've done, but also keep it super fresh. And, you know, so every five to 10 years, I feel like I will try something at least somewhat new and exciting. And um, it's been great. It's been great for me. So I recommend that approach for people, for folks who that comes naturally to you. Oh, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing your future adventures. So before we let you go, tell us where people can get in touch with you. Yeah, probably LinkedIn is the best. Matt Gray 80, M-A-T-T-G-R-A-Y 80. Um, so that's, that's probably the best. But also don't hesitate. You can email me as well. Um, M Gray, M-G-R-A-Y at the SCA.org also works. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. That's our show. Thank you, Matt, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.